Luke chapter 24, would you stand as I read chapter 24, verses 13 through 35? Hear the word of the Lord. Now that same day, two of them, that is two of the disciples, were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them, but they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? He asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astonished us, They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going further. But they urged him, stay with us because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in and stayed to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it, And gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, Weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven, and those of them, those with them gathered together, and said, The Lord has truly been raised, and appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that by your grace and by your power, it has come inspired. God breathed before us today. Thousands of years later, we have full confidence that you have spoken here. And so we ask that Holy Spirit, you would accompany your word in power that it might affect your desired results in us, that it would bring, up, bring forth faith, that it would bring forth obedience, that it would be issued for your glory. So Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts that are softened by your power and your grace. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, Lord, speak. 
God of glory, would you speak? Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we introduced the subject of hope and the hope that Jesus' resurrection brings in a sin and darkened world. We spent some time talking about how we ourselves are beset by, at times, what feels like hopelessness. If we take too much of our, too many of our cues from the world around us, it is so easy to bend the knee, so to speak, to the hopelessness of the world around us. When we look at the famines and the pandemics and the wars and the sicknesses on a broad scale, and then you add into the the big, broad milieu, if you will, of, of national, international events, you add into that our own anxieties, our own fears, our own afflictions and sufferings. We talked about how often suffering and affliction, it feels like it's simply a wave crashing on the beach of our lives. But there are times when it feels like the wave is swallowing us up. And that's an experience that I think all of us have had, perhaps are having, and without a doubt will have in this world. But hope is a precious resource. You could Google the importance of water, how what percentage of our planet is covered in water and what percentage of our bodies is made up of water and how important clean water is to to peoples across the world who don't have access to what we have access to. But I would present the case to you this morning that hope is spiritual water. That without hope, we are we dry up. We get crusty. We get fearful. We get hesitant to love and hesitant to extend ourselves. But there's a, not only are we in danger of losing hope, but I think what the, these two disciples on the road to Emmaus are suffering as they encounter Jesus isn't a lack of hope, but it's a misplaced hope. They're not suffering from a lack of hope necessarily, even though their hopes have been dashed. But what we need to see is that when Jesus appears, when Jesus shows up, false hopes are dashed and put away with so that true, authentic, vibrant hope can emerge. When Jesus comes into your life, you have to do away with all of the false hopes all the other things that you were relying on, all of the other narratives and stories, the things that you were saying, if this will happen, then I will have security. Then I will be fulfilled. Then what my family will be safe. Then our country will be secure. Then our church will be okay. If all of these other things happen. See, all of those things can have the fragrance of Jesus and not be set upon Jesus. All of those things can utilize the verbiage of Jesus and not actually be rooted in Jesus. You can talk about the essential nature of Jesus for the hope of our church and then operate in such a way as though Jesus were not our hope. 
operate in such a way as though we were simply a secular business looking at the bottom line. You can operate like that as a family where you bring your family to church, you pray before your meals, but Jesus isn't much else beyond that and you place your hope for your children in something else. Perhaps in their athletic ability, in their academic prowess, their ability to take up a trade, You have the the fragrance of Jesus, but your hope isn't ultimately set upon Jesus. And only hopes that are set ultimately and fully upon Jesus will be durable enough to last when that crest of the wave of affliction and suffering comes upon you. Otherwise, all of our other hopes will be dashed and we'll be left with nothing. So the first thing that Jesus does, one of the first things that Jesus does in our lives is that he does away with false hope. He does away with false conceptions of what he's about in your life. He does away with false hopes because false hopes are ultimately built upon idols. But in their place, he brings in true hope. True hope, which is himself. So immediately after Jesus has died, he's been raised from the dead. We learned at the beginning of the chapter. We talked about last week at Easter Sunday. And these two disciples are now traveling from Jerusalem. And they are, they're confused. They're bewildered. They don't quite understand what's happened. And they're discussing and arguing, it says in verse 15. They're, they're going back and forth about how to interpret What has just happened? You see, so far at this point, Jesus' trial, his mockery, his humiliation, his crucifixion, his death, all of that has been very, very public. And his resurrection has only been witnessed and testified by a few. So far, it's just a private matter, not quite as public. So they're trying to deal with how has Christ... The Messiah, they believed. How is it that he suffered all of these things? How is it that he could have died? You see, they were taking their their cues from their circumstances and from their perception of the circumstances rather than from what God had said. And then Jesus appears and Jesus is near. Jesus is near to those whose hopes are dashed or confused. And even in the midst of our false hopes, even in the midst of our confused hopes, those things are but a shadow of true hope in Jesus. It is a good and right thing to hope for better days for the American church. It's a good and right thing to hope for security and safety for your family. It's a good and right thing to have hope for yourself, for this life and for the life to come. But if those things aren't rooted on Christ, then they're actually hopeless. But all of the hopes that circulate in this world, all of the hopes that blossom in your own heart, they actually are a shadow of true hope of what Christ can and will do. So Jesus shows up, but they can't see him. Verse 16, they're prevented from recognizing him. This is actually a a little miniature theme in the Gospel of Luke. 
Verse, I mean, chapter 9, verse 45, people cannot recognize Jesus. Chapter 18, verse 34, people cannot recognize Jesus. And there's a, there's a small lesson that we need to learn here. That if you are going to see Jesus, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to believe in Jesus, it is not simply a matter of knowing more, of getting more evidence, of having more facts before you. You cannot learn of Jesus as you would study a biology book and learn of mitosis and meiosis, photosynthesis and the nitrogen cycle. You cannot learn of Jesus as you would read through Shakespeare or read through Hamlet and consider, you know, I'm not, you, know you know what I'm saying. You, you can't study him like you would study something in school and think that you're going to arrive at spiritual faith-building knowledge. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that the, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers. He says later, I mean, it says earlier in chapter 2, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, uh, that, the, that the natural person cannot, cannot perceive the things, the spiritual things of God. 2.14, the natural person, all of that to say, if God has not opened your spiritual eyes, Jesus could stand right in front of you and you would not recognize him. He could stand right in front of you with Jesus across his t-shirt and have all of the stars, the constellation of heaven, reorient themselves to with big blinking arrows that point down and says, this is Jesus. And if God has not worked in your heart, then you will not believe it. Because in effect, that's what's happened to these guys. They've seen Jesus before. Never resurrected at this point, but they've seen him. They've heard him and he's right before them. And what you need to know today, dear one, is Jesus is right before you. He is presented right before you. And if you cannot behold him with faith, if you are not trusting in him, you're not believing in him, despite understanding all of the nuts and bolts of what the gospel's about, then you need to cry out to God for new spiritual eyes. For him to make you alive and to give you sight. Because otherwise you will remain blinded in your sin and in darkness and ultimate hopelessness. So they can't see him, but he's there. He's present and he begins, they can't, they don't recognize him, but he's present. And he asks, what's this dispute? Why are you guys arguing? He comes in as this sort of oblivious bystander. What's going on? Has anything happened in Jerusalem recently? What's the, what's the news guys? And they are so shook by the question that they stop. They stop the way they're going and they, they begin to look discouraged. They're saddened. They're downcast. Their hopes have just been crushed. They thought this about Jesus. And this is exactly what they say down in verse 21. We were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. They said earlier, he is a prophet, powerful in action and speech. See, they understood a little bit about Jesus, but they did not have a full picture, a faith 
filled confession of Jesus, the Son of God, who died in our place and rose from the dead. They had a little bit, but they did not have the whole. And because they did not have the whole, their hopes were crushed on Golgotha's hill. There on the cross of Christ, their hopes were dashed and they're left downtrodden, discouraged. Feeling in the dark. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're at the place of your life and you don't understand how you got right here. It feels like if you were to turn around behind you, all you would see is a broken road full of weeds, devastation by your own doing or by the doing of others to you. And people come to you and say, what's wrong? And you become like these disciples. You stop where you're going and all of a sudden the, the flood of recollection floods in. It's as though you wake up every day trying to run from your past. You feel like if you just get out the door today, your past won't catch up with you. But when someone finally stops to ask you, what's going on? That conveyor belt just comes crashing into the back of your head. And you're left downtrodden and discouraged. So I'm going to ask you, what's going on? Where are you? What are you hoping in and what are you trusting? And if that's the truth, the conveyor belt of your wreckage is piling into your brain and all you can think about is all the ways that you're wrong and all the ways that you've you've broken something, you've hurt people, you've done wrong, you've been done wrong. I want to tell you, you are at at the exact right spot for Jesus to do something in your life. When we quit running from our wreckage, when we stop and we even let it hit us a little bit, dear one, that's when Jesus does his greatest work. It's when we finally realize that our hearts and our souls are but they're just shattered by sin and brokenness and affliction and suffering. And we have no idea how to put them back together. We're like Humpty Dumpty who fell off the wall and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together back again. This is what sin has done to us. We have have not just fallen off the wall, we've taken a belly flop off the wall and we have landed crushed by sin, disobedient to God and rebellion against him. Let it hit you. And now think of the cross. What ought to have crushed you has crushed your Savior. The sin that has wrecked your life and possibly the lives of people that you love and care about. Jesus isn't going to turn back the clock and wipe all that stuff out. But he is going to say that is no longer on you. You will not carry that for eternity. You look to the cross and you see the one who is broken in your stead. He who knew no sin became sin. So that everyone who believes in him 
Everyone who trusts in Him, everyone who calls out to the Lord in faith, will be saved. Your past does not define you. Jesus defines you if you will just trust Him. He will begin piecing together a new heart for you. A new life for you. But if you continue to run from your brokenness and you continue to run from Jesus, that can never happen. You've got to stop and let your brokenness and Jesus intersect. A broken and contrite heart he does not despise. Jesus is near and they were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. They did not see that through suffering, death, the brutality of the cross, that it was through that Jesus would accomplish his ends. And if that's the way that Jesus accomplishes his ends through the gospel, consider how he might accomplish his ends through you. When are you most desperate for God? When do you call out and say, Lord, come, meet near, I need you. Is it when you're dancing through the daisy fields, the rainbows are shining in the background, the unicorns are prancing across your life, when all is rosy and cheer, that's when we're prone to forget. It's when we are brought into the valley and the stickers and the thorns and the briars, we have snakes at our heels, we have wolves at our back, and we cry out, say, Jesus, help me. Might it be in the valley that he is going to accomplish his will for you today? Jesus says, but you're so slow of heart. You're slow to believe, even though he's right in front of them. And this is the plight right now for some of you. Is that he's right in front of you. And every, you know everything I've said thus far. You know the brokenness. You know the pain. You know the valley. You know the wreckage of sin even. And all you want to do is continue running. Like you can outrun sin and outrun God. Don't be so slow to believe that Jesus might be for you. That Jesus might be here in front of you to rescue you. He's not someone to run from. He is someone to run to. So Jesus hearing this, and he admonishes them about their slowness of, to believe. And, and he says, wasn't it necessary? You remember that from last week? That's going to show up in all three of the messages from Luke 24. The necessity, just as a reminder, uh, verse 7, saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. Verse 26, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? So that there's really redemption through no other means. And then it shows up again in verse 44 that all of the scripture must be fulfilled in Jesus. So Jesus is near and Jesus is necessary. There is no other hope. There's no other hope. There's no one else. There's nothing else. There's no philosophy. There's no guru. There's no self-help magazine. There's no Dr. Phil. 
Oprah, Steve Harvey, he's fun sometimes. None of those people can help fix the wreckage in your rear view. And none of those people can help you not lay more wreckage ahead of you. None of the self-help stuff. Fundamentally, every other philosophy and every other religion on the planet centers the hope upon you. And if you're real with yourself, you know that you don't have what it takes to fix the problem. Because every time you try to fix it, it just breaks worse. It's like when I try to fix something in my house, it just breaks worse. And I have to call up Brian. I'm like, Brian, he's one of our deacons here who does everything. Hey, Brian, I need, how do I, how do I fix a light switch? You know, um, no, it's not that bad. It's bad, though. Oh. I'm working on it. I watch a lot of YouTube about it. Not really. uh, but none of those, all of those philosophies and the religions of the world boil down to you. You've got to obey. You've got to try harder. You've got to do better. And, and at your most cl- clear moments, you know. You know you have to do better. Right? You, you know you can't put, up the, put the pieces back together. But the way that we cope with it is that we continue to run and we can continue to try to sew this all back together. To take up all these pieces and pat, patchwork our hearts back together. But that's not how Jesus works. The message of the gospel of Christ is not try harder, do better. It is not do, 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 do. The message of the gospel, it's good news because the message is done. Jesus stretched out his hands. He was pinned to the tree for you, saying it is finished. All that is necessary All that is necessary to pay your debt to God has been paid. All that is necessary to take away the wrath of God due for your sins has been paid. All of the power of hell that was due to you for your sin has been laid upon Christ. It is finished, dear one. It was necessary because this is the only way and he is the only name given among men by which we must be saved. So believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Quit your running. He is near and he is necessary. And he can be known. Jesus unpacks for them in verse 27. From the word of God, he interprets how basically all of the Bible is about Jesus. Have you considered that? Some of you are still doggedly, I'm proud of you, pursuing our Bible reading plan as a church. It's not easy. I know it's not easy. But have you considered as you as you're plowing through Leviticus, people always have their hang up places here. Pastor's confession. Two places I get hung up when I'm reading the Bible through Leviticus 13 and 14. The leprosy and then how you cleanse leprosy. Those chapters feel like they're six million verses long every year. But I'm like, Lord, this is about Jesus. And the second one is first first Chronicles. The first nine chapters are just genealogy. And I'm like. And I can't pronounce half of them. And so I'm sitting there trying to pronounce them. And my family thinks I'm insane. So uh, anyways, but, but all of this is about Christ. Leviticus 13 and 14 is about Jesus. First Chronicles 1 through 9 is about Jesus. Psalm fill in the blank is about Jesus. Those difficult parts of Ezekiel. The last 40 through the end of the chapter 40 through the end of the book. Those about Jesus. 
That's exa- the principle that he's laying down is that every scripture, every ounce of the Old Testament is about Christ. It is not something for us to throw away and to put in the wastebasket. It's something to dive in with Christological glasses because it has much to teach us about Jesus. So he begins to show them from, the, from Moses and all the prophets. So Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible. Anybody? We're not going to do it. Pentateuch. And then the prophets, but this is shorthand for all of the scriptures. As we see later in the, in the chapter, he's talking about all of the Bible. All of the Old Testament is about Christ. So the way that he comes at their hopelessness, at the way that he comes at their, 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 they feel crushed and they're feeling obliterated under all of these expectations that don't come to be. The way that God first intercedes there is through the truth of his word. If you're going to know Jesus, you must know the Jesus revealed in the Bible. Good grief. Am I tired of Christians making up some Jesus, saying, my Jesus would never do that, when the Jesus that's right before you says he does exactly that. If you simply craft from your imagination, with a little bit of scripture plugged in the holes, if you simply craft, this is what Jesus must be like, All you have done is that it's not made of clay or gold or silver, but you have crafted an imagination idol. And you're going to worship that. Rather than saying, Jesus, who are you? Who are you, according to the Bible? What is it that you came to do? What is your person? What is your work? What will you do in the future? Who are you? And you have no grounds to make it up. You have no grounds to just wing it. So Jesus intersects their hopelessness and their ignorance that they don't see him. They don't know him. He is near. He is necessary. And he, if, if he is going to be known, he's going to be known according to his word. You cannot, you cannot separate Jesus From the Bible. I don't have time. You don't have the afternoon to preach that sermon of what the church has done trying to do that. Quest for the historical Jesus, higher criticism. Jesus certainly wouldn't have done that. He would have done this. When people come to the Gospels with a butcher knife, not even a scalpel, take away the bits that we don't really like to keep the bits that we really do like. Like Thomas Jefferson in his Bible, that's just idolatry at work. Making a God in our image rather than acknowledging that we have been made in his image. So he's known through his word. But even as he gives them the information, they're, they come near Emmaus and he's, a, he's, gonna, he's saying he's going to go further, but he says he's going to stay with them and it's at the table. This is wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. So he reclined at the table. So they've heard all of this truth. We learn in a little bit that their hearts were on fire. It is nothing else for a spirit-filled believer to come to the word of God and behold Jesus in it. You want to know why I wake up so stinking early? So that I can see Jesus in the Bible. So that I can meet him. There's a great quote by Robert Murray McShane who, remember last year we did his reading plan as a church. 
Um, but he has in his journal, he says, I rose early to meet the one whom my soul loveth, and him I found. One line. To, your hearts burn, they ignite when you see him there. But then he, they're not quite sure. And so in verse 30, he reclines at the table. They come to Emmaus, and they're around the table, and Jesus takes the bread, and he blesses it and breaks it. Where else do we see this? The Lord's Supper. Now, there's no cup here, so you might be assuming, I'm not saying that he, he had like an official communion with them. But he takes the bread, and he breaks it before them, and this visible act, he's known there. Now, I'm going to get a little wonky for you Baptists. I am a Baptist, but I'm a wonky Baptist sometimes. Don't fire me at the business meeting. Just a few minutes. Maybe, maybe not. No, I love you guys. But it's in this visible ordinance that Jesus performs before them. It's a visible sermon. So that what we do when we perform, so to speak, when we administer the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, we're preaching visible sermons. So it matters how you do it. It matters what you do it with. Don't go home and do it with Mountain Dew and Diet Coke and Doritos. Good. COVID, I almost went apple, apoplectic, you know, with all these churches. Just grab some peanut M&Ms and some Fresca. I'm, I'm not, that sounds mocking because I'm mocking a little bit. Uh, but it matters. Because Jesus took the cup and he took the bread. The cup is the blood and the bread is his body. And so he says, in your hopelessness, remember the body. Next time you take the Lord's Supper, listen to the words. Examine yourself. But think on Jesus. Meditate upon Christ. Feast spiritually as you are feasting physically. And you will see your faith enlarged and your understanding and your knowledge of God grow. So he breaks it and he gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. Jesus is known in the ways that he is given to be known through word and through ordinance. This is the primary way that we learn of Christ. So the question stands for you. Will you continue to run hopelessly from your sin, from your past, from your baggage, from your brokenness? And and what you need to see is as you run from those things, you're running from Jesus who is near. He is nearer, nearer to you than anything or anyone else right now. Christ is here. God is here. And Jesus is necessary if you will have hope and new life in this world. So stop running. Stop fighting. And say, Jesus, come. Help me believe. Help me see. Help me trust. And by God's grace, you will believe. And you will trust. And he will begin the reclamation project of your life. Of growing you up into the image of himself. Christian, it's so easy to have hope. 
that has the fragrance of Jesus, but not the substance of Jesus. What are you trusting today, dear one? Where is your faith? Where is your hope? Is it in the political workings of the United States? We all know that's bankrupt. Is it in children and grandchildren, the wonderful blessings that they are? My kids can't carry my hope. Be sinful to try to lay it on them. No, our hope has to be in Christ, our Lord, the victor over sin and death. He is near, he is necessary, and he can be known for all those who come humbly to trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your presence amongst us that you are working that your word goes out, it will not come back void, that it will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. So, Lord, would you send your word out and would you take the seed of the gospel and plant it deep in hearts today? Would you save us from shallow, surface-level impact? Because it's at the surface and at the shallow soil that Satan does his work. But, Lord, would you take this seed of the gospel and plant it so deep in these hearts that the evil one cannot reach it. And that Holy Spirit, you would accompany it with power that new life would spring forth in dead hearts. That new hope would shine forth for the hopeless, for the, for the afflicted and the wandering, those who are, seem to be forgotten, those who are broken and feel like they've been cast on the rocks, just shattered, oh God. Would they know your mending touch as they believe and trust in Christ? That, Lord, even through suffering, even through affliction, even through our hopes being dashed, you have and are accomplishing redemption for us. Lord, we love you because you have first loved us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.